Hello, everyone. This podcast episode is sponsored by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities, such as host read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, giveaways, and more. I've had a really positive relationship with Podcorn, and I've done several sponsorship ads through them, and it's all been really positive. In fact, I've had emails with uh, the crew there, and they get back to you very quickly, and they truly care about helping podcasters of all size, all brands, and you can just choose opportunities right on their platform. You can set your own rates, collaborate with brands directly without any exclusivities, and you never give up any rights to your podcast. They're there to support you. As I said, I've had a very positive support relationship with you. They're constantly putting out new sponsorship opportunities, and it's just a marketplace that gives podcasters transparency, greater freedom, and full control of how and when you monetize your podcast. So make sure you check out the link to Podcorn in my show notes. And again, I'm very grateful for the work that they've done with me, and I think you'll be grateful for that work as well. Remember, guys, check out Podcorn in the show notes. Thanks. You know... I've been doing a lot of these podcasts, so many episodes over the past year and a half, and the one that you're about to hear with Christine Ming Ming Garner is one of my favorites. It's one of the most powerful retellings of a story, and in this case, it's the retelling of a story of escaping a doomsday cult. I was blown away by the discussion and really just the telling of the story. It was impactful, it was riveting, and there's a lot of courage in telling the story. So I'm so thankful for Christine being on and discussing it, and her level of honesty and emotion, it really comes through in the episode. So sit back, relax, and really take in this episode with Christine Ming Ming Garner. back here in the network with this time, Christine Ming-Ming Garner. And I am so happy to have you on today. Thanks for being on. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you, Darian. We got to talk about your beginnings, for real. Like the doomsday code. Now, did you grow up in that? Or was it something that, uh, you uh, you know, how how did you get into this? Yeah. Yes, that's the infamous question, right? So let me tell you a little bit about my background. So my parents were refugees from the Vietnam War, and they escaped Vietnam. And I was born in Portland, Oregon. I was the fifth of six children. And I had a really normal childhood up until the age of seven. One day, my mom came home from work, and she told my dad, she said, I was listening to an audio tape from a a bunch of my friends were listening to this during lunchtime. And this man 
is, you know, proclaiming to be a prophet of God. And he's prophesying that the end of the world is coming very soon. Mm -hmm. And people who are living on the West Coast, um, which we were living in Portland, Oregon, they're going to die first because there's going to be a huge earthquake. And this portion of the United States is going into the ocean. So if you love me and you love our kids, you need to help me get up and follow the prophet. So my dad didn't believe in any of it. He was like, bull pucky, you know, what, what, who is this man? And what are you talking about? And we just barely bought your dream home, you know, and, um, my parents were really frugal people and, you know, being refugees from the Vietnam war, they came with nothing, but over, um, over time they were able to save enough money to buy my mom's dream home. And she had been looking for this house for over a decade. And at that time when my mom came home and talked about, you know, leaving. He's like, we haven't even lived in this house for a year yet. What are you talking about? And she said, we're all going to die. None, none of this matters. And so she put the house on the market and sold it super duper fast. And within a month from the time that she came home that day, we were packed and we went to follow the prophet. Wow. And he led us to what he called the promised land, which was Southeastern Idaho. Wow, Idaho. Who knew that Idaho was the promised land? I mean. I know, huh. right? Wow, know. potatoes and stuff, you know, like. I know. <laughs> what was the friction between your mom and your dad, though? Like, he wasn't into it, but your mom was. How did that manifest itself to make that decision? Gosh, great question. So much contention, so much conflict in the home. I mean, from the the very day that she came home with that news, it was like, fights galore, you know, and mm -hmm. my dad didn't believe in any of it. And the prophet actually came to our home. So he like was making his grand tour from like all these cities in California and then all the way up in, um, all throughout Portland, Oregon. And, and he actually came to our home. My, my mom invited him to our home and, and flocks of people, uh, were in our home sitting on the floor, just listening to this man. And my dad's like, that man is like a servant of the devil. You know, mm. he's here to, to trick you. And my mom's like, no, you have no idea. Like he, he, I know he's a prophet of God. And anyhow, so they fought and they fought. And then the, the day that we packed up, I mean, my dad just bought my mom this really old rickety van and helped her put a couple of mattresses in there and was like, okay, good luck. You know, I'm not going to give you any money and you're going to be destitute when you get there, but you're really, I know you're going to come back because this is all a fluke. This is all fake. And, but really what happened is she, she ended up taking us and he ended up following us, trying to get us to come home. Mm -hmm. But the prophet basically exiled him because he was a non-believer. And he had told my mom, if you allow him into our organization, like you can't be a part of this group and you're not going to get saved. And your husband is like a, like a virus in our society. He has to go. So he had to leave. And then within a year or so, my older brothers, I had three older brothers that came and they had to leave as well. So we, we started as a family of eight 
and we ended up being a family of three in the promised land. It was just me. And at the time I was seven and then I had my three-year-old sister and then my mom. And then my brothers, I had my oldest brother who never came. He, He refused to come. And he was a teenager at the time and he stayed in Portland. And then my dad went back home to Portland and so did my other three brothers. So yeah, it just, it, it completely destroyed our family. Oh my gosh. What was this prophet basing all of this on? Was there something in the, that he had heard or spoken to or any type of religious text? Yeah, that's a really, <laughs> so the, the, he would have us listen to these audio tapes where he was actually, now we never saw this in the flesh, but he said that God would speak through somebody, which these audio tapes he had recorded in Vietnam. So he was a Vietnamese man and a prophet. um, And he said that it all started in Vietnam before he moved to the States and God would speak to him through somebody. And he had all these audio tapes recorded and it was just this really weird warped voice mm-hmm. that was like speaking and prophesying and telling him all these things. And we would just have to listen to these over and over and over. And he had, he had dozens of these tapes. Wow. And, and that formed his whole basis for this? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What was it about your mom that you think made her very susceptible to this? I think because she was a refugee from the Vietnam War and she had been through a lot of trauma because she had escaped, you know, destruction before Mm -hmm. that I think that's what made her susceptible to believing. And she's always been a very faithful person and she's, she's a good woman. She is such a good woman. Like I don't want anybody to have the misconception that she did this to hurt us because she really did everything that she could to, she thought she was protecting us right, and saving us. And so I think that's truly, I mean, she's always been a very faithful woman and she's escaped trauma in the past. And I think that's exactly what she was trying to do again. Yeah. No, your dad though was, I mean, they were together in Vietnam, I assume. Yeah, they actually got married in Vietnam, and then um, recently after, or pretty soon after they got married, they escaped from Vietnam on a boat. Now, what what was different on his end that he wasn't as, he wasn't into it like your mom was? You know, my dad's never been, um, although he was like religious, he was never very spiritual. Mm. And like, he was more of a factual person where my mom would go off of like feelings or dreams. Yeah. And she was just very, she was very strict in her faith. And um, so I think that's why she just really believed this man. So you guys were in Idaho and what was the daily, what was daily life like, a typical day? Typical day. So as soon as we got up, we would pray. And if anybody's Catholic and knows the rosary, we would pray the rosary three times. 
And then there's all the other prayers that, that go along with it. And there's just, there are so many prayers from all the different saints, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> praying, we'd, we'd be on our knees for at least 50 minutes, hmm. you know, in the morning and then we'd eat and then we'd go to the prophet's house and he would be prophesying and teaching us from the Bible, but his teachings from the Bible. Um, and we would be there for hours and hours and hours. I mean, I just remember there was just dozens of people that would be sitting in just this little apartment and they'd just be like, everybody would just have this little tiny space, you know, to sit on the floor. And Asians are totally cool with like not sitting on a chair. You know what I'm saying? Like we we sit on the floor a lot. So like, if you can only imagine just like dozens of little Asian people sitting on the floor huddled and the prophet's sitting up on a chair and he's prophesying to us and everybody's just sitting. And and as a seven-year-old, I could never stay still for hours and hours. I remember getting up and I would always like pretend that I was really thirsty. So I'd get up and, and the house was, I mean, the apartment was always super hot. Like, cause we never turned on the AC. I mean, Asians are like really frugal people, like never turn on AC. Mm -hmm. So they opened the windows and it was just super hot and they'd have like these little plastic cups. And I would try to just get up as as often as I could just to get a cup of water so I could get out, get up, you know, and then have to go back, sit down. But it was hours of this. Then we'd eat a meal and we'd come back and we'd pray and, and we'd end the day. So that was our daily, our daily jam. Was it a certain type of, um, you know, some versions of, of things related to this, maybe there's certain type of foods that you're eating, only certain things you could have. Was that part of it or no? No, mm -mm. no, just kind of just eating. And what was the doomsday element like? Was there a date in mind that yes. this is when? Th- yeah, so what's that? So we left to Idaho at the beginning of the summer, and I remember it being right around Mother's Day because um, I had made my mom a Mother's Day gift, and it was like you know I had put like a seed in a pot or something at school, and it hadn't sprouted yet. And I just remember putting that in the van that we were, you know, traveling into Idaho and I had to keep it like, you know, I had to put it under a blanket so my mom couldn't see it. And then when we finally got there, it was like right on Mother's Day and I gave that to her as a gift. So I remember it being right around Mother's Day that we got there and they said August and this was 1993. August of 1993 was going to be the doomsday. And that we would expect the three days of darkness and evil to roam the earth. And if you weren't perfect and pure, that evil and Satan himself could come into your home and mm-hmm. you would just die just from the sight of him. And so we had to be perfect. We had to become perfect. And anybody who wasn't perfect could not be a part of the cult. Hmm. Was there ever kind of cracks in this whole thing where people were murmuring or saying like, I'm not sure about this, you know? Oh, absolutely. So the first date came and went, right? August came and went and everybody's like, what happened? Right. You know, like where, where, where was doomsday? I sold everything that I owned. I mean, there were some really affluent families that had followed us. Wow. Like, you know, there, I remember there was a man who was a goldsmith who, um, sold everything that he had 
and his whole, whole business, his, his home, everything to follow the prophet. And he was like, what happened? You know, like what you prophesied didn't happen. And then we had, you know, businesses or people that owned like restaurants and laundromats. And they were like, wow, I've sold everything to be here. Don't tell me that this is fake. And he would just yeah. come up with another date. The prophet would be like, hey, it's going to be another, you know, nine months down the road. You guys got to be perfect and do everything perfectly. And um, then that date would come and go and then families would leave. Hmm. But then new ones would come in. So it was like this oh. constant like, you know, circle of people coming and going. But we always remained Interesting. Why do you, do you think? Because your mother's faith was so strong that she was like, "Nope, nope, he's telling the truth. Let's just continue to do this." Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I do think that. I also think that there was an element of my mom had destroyed something that she had spent, you know, half her lifetime building which was a marriage and six kids. And, you know, she had a dream home and she had a great job. And, but when she decided to leave, she was willing to, to part with all of that. And then I think when you go so far down the road and you've already lost all of that, it's hard to turn back because all of our family in Portland had warned her and all of our family in Vietnam, it was like, don't follow this man. This can't be right. And I just think you go down so far down that road, it's like the point of no return. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So what was – how long were you guys actually in this? Or when did you stop well, being in it? I entered when I was seven. And they, you know, they told me that I was – gonna die in like three months from the time that I joined, right? Mm -hmm. That never happened. And then then he stopped giving us dates. He was like, well, the reason why God has spared you is because you're listening to me so diligently. If you continue to do this, then God will give us more time on the earth. And so, but as I got older and there was there was a gaggle of other kids about my age or younger. And they're like, you know what? There's if, if you are so pure and so perfect and doomsday comes before you're 15, which like the chances of that happening are really high, there's a possibility that you can be like translated to heaven if you're absolutely perfect. So live your life so perfectly, pray every day that you could potentially survive, but most likely you're not going to be perfect. So you're going to die before the age of 15. You're never going to be able to graduate from high school or college have a family, have a career. So don't plan for any of those things. So our education was absolutely inconsequential to them. Hmm. We went to school up until I was 13 because they didn't want to, I think, just to be in trouble with the government. Right. But then at that time, they realized for me that I was such a threat to their society because they always told me, never make friends never speak to anybody outside of our cult about what we believe and why we're here. And, you know, you just really need to stay to yourself. And when I was outside the home, I felt so free because I was around people who weren't talking about doomsday mm -hmm. and 
weren't talking about scary things. And so I thrived on these relationships outside my home and they saw that. And so they kept me and my sister home. And at first they're like, yeah, we're going to homeschool you. And after a couple of weeks, they just gave up. They're like, you know what? Well, I don't even know why we're homeschooling you. Like you're never going to use this education. You're going to die really soon. And that's when, I mean, there was the first year that I was homeschooled, um, just every now and then, like every couple of months, I would escape when they weren't watching and I would go and see my friends during lunchtime. We lived about two miles from the school. And I just remember them catching me one day and how badly I was punished from that, that I was like, I've got to get out and I've got to get my sister out. And my sister at the time was just about 10 years old. And um, that's when I started saving up money. It was just little bits here and there. I mean, I'd find coins in the couch cushions and every now and then I'd steal a dollar here or there out of my mom's purse because I was planning on leaving. I needed to find my dad because for years when he was exiled, he he never heard from us because we couldn't have any communication with him. They wouldn't let us have a phone. Um, but I knew that he must still be in Portland because we had such deep roots. Like we had all of our family there, his brothers and sisters, and my grandma was still there. And so I was like, I need to make it back to Portland to tell dad that we need his help and we need to get out. And so I started saving up money and um, I never told my sister about this plan because I didn't want her to worry. But the day that I had almost enough money, because I remember that the Greyhound ticket from Idaho to Portland, Oregon was about $46 and I was about $5 short, but I had had enough. And I was like, I am... I told my sister, I said, I'm going to go. I'm going to go find dad. And she's like, how are you going to find him? You don't even have a phone. You don't even know where he lives. And I said, I'm just going to go to Portland and I'm going to go back to the area that we used to live, that our cousin used to live. I'm going to stand on the street corner with a sign that says, I'm looking for Kai Tran. Oh my gosh. And I was like, I'm going to find him no matter what. And I'm going to come back for you. And I will never forget that was the most difficult conversation I've ever had in my life because that meant she was going to be alone. And we, we had gone through everything together. So that was really hard for me when I had to, I crawled out the window because we were locked inside the home. They dead bolted us from the outside and the windows were barred up with um, sheetrock and uh, plywood because they said that at the end of times, you never wanted, you wanted all your windows to be barred up because evil spirits could come inside. Anyways, but there was one window that they always left open because, and it was the window that was facing the prophet's house. And they said, because we always complained, we said, you know, you can't lock us in the house like this because, you know, when my mom's not home and it's just me and my little sister, like there could be a fire. And they always said, well, just open up the window and call for the prophet and he'll help you. But that was the only window in the house that I could 
escape from. So I watched all day to where like I kind of watched his routine, like he'd be cooking in the kitchen and then, you know, his wife would be washing dishes and then they'd go and pray. And so I like jumped out the window and I ran. And on the way to the bus stop, I knew where a policeman lived. So I stopped and I told him my plan and I said, but my sister is still in that house. I don't know when I'm going to be able to make it back to get her, but I need you to help her. And the policeman said, Christine, I can't let you go. You can't go because you'd be a runaway and it's extremely dangerous. He goes, you need to crawl back into the window, act as if we never spoke, and I Mm. will send help for you tomorrow. And so... When I crawled back into the window, I'll never forget. My sister was rolled up in a ball on the kitchen floor. And she had been bawling the whole time I had been gone. And she said, I thought I'd never see you again. And I realized I could never leave her like that again. Yeah. But the next day, as promised, um, the police came and there was another vehicle and I'm assuming it's like child protective services. And then also my junior high principal came and um, I couldn't hear what they were saying because we had German shepherds that were chained to the porch to keep strangers away. And they were going crazy. They're like pulling on their chains and they're barking up a storm. And I literally couldn't hear anything that they were saying. But my mom walked out and some other cult members walked out to talk to them. They talked for a good hour. And I I looked at my sister and I said, we we better pack up our stuff. I'm pretty sure they're going to take us, you know, take us to dad. And after that long hour conversation, my mom came back in the house and didn't say a word. And nothing changed. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. So that was devastating, to say the least. Yeah. Devastating. Um, later on that summer, as we were praying, my mom, she was just, she was crying uncontrollably and I just said, mom, what's the matter? And she told me in a very hushed tone because we were always being listened to. They had, they basically bugged our apartment. Like Mm -hmm. we, we couldn't speak without them hearing us except for like in particular rooms in our house. If we spoke lightly enough, my mom assumed that they couldn't hear us. Anyways, she said, I just heard from a friend that your dad tried to commit suicide. Oh, my. And she said, he needs to hear our voice. And so we need to go to to the payphone. And I know some of the audience, our audience may not even know what a payphone is. But That's true. Basically. <laughs> At the at you know gas stations or grocery stores, they'd have a public telephone where you could put quarters in, and uh, the nearest place to us was about two and a half miles, and it was a Sunday, and my mom was like, 
we have to sneak out and we have to make it all the way to that grocery store so that we can call and try to find dad. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, how are we even going to make it? Because we don't have a vehicle. We don't have a car, right? Yeah. And cult members live all around us. We basically live on this compound. And on Sundays, everybody's home. And we were like forbidden to spend money on Sunday. So I was like, oh my gosh, you know, like mom is really on a crime spree here, you know? So yeah. we we escape, we take the back roads so that we don't get discovered in the event somebody does drive on the, the main road and see us. And we walk all the way to the, to the grocery store. We lived in a really tiny town. There was one grocery store. So when we get there, and it's it's closed because nothing is open on Sundays in that little tiny town. And my mom had a little bag of quarters and an old uh, telephone book where she had written, you know, the names of family members and their phone numbers. But she hadn't contacted them in like eight years. So a lot of these phone numbers were no longer no longer active numbers. Yeah. So she's spending these quarters and then by the time she actually reached somebody, they would be like, it's you. I haven't heard from you in so many years. Like, how come you left your family? How come you did this? You know, how dare you this? And and then all of a sudden, you know, after two or three minutes, like the phone would just drop Mm -hmm. because you only had a certain amount of time for every quarter. And so she's trying, she's trying all these numbers and then we ran out of quarters we 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 never actually found out my dad's phone number to get a hold of him and we're standing there in desperation and we're just bawling and all of a sudden there's this man that drives up into the parking lot parks his vehicle and we're looking at him like doesn't he know that the store's closed today it's sunday and he comes up with a handful of quarters and he goes to the vending machine at the front of the store to buy a soda and it's about 10 feet away from like the payphone that we're standing at. And he's just looking at us and he knows something's wrong. So he's trying to make some like little chit chat. He's like, do you, can I get you a soda? You know, like, and then he's like, what's the matter? And my mom wouldn't look at him because she was literally being caught in the middle of a crime. Yeah. You know, she was super ashamed. And I finally looked at him and I said, we're trying to get a hold of my dad. He really needs to hear our voice. But we ran out of quarters. And he goes, I have quarters. And he literally handed us all his quarters. And then he's like, I'm going to go to the gas station that's open and I will get you some more quarters. And just as he promised, he came back with more quarters. And we were able to find out that my dad was still alive. Uh, He was in the hospital. And we got to talk to my brothers, who we hadn't talked to for in years. And it was, it was like a miracle. And then the next phone call my mom made was to my uncle who lived in California. And she said, I need you to come pick us up so that I can go see my family. And that was a huge, huge turning point for us. Wow. That, that must be hard to relive telling that and all the pain, you know, you know? Yeah, thank you for acknowledging that because truly I've um I've retold this story multiple times through, you know, different podcasts and the first few times like definitely couldn't get through it without sobbing. So, I'm grateful that I can 
get to this point in my life where I can retell it and be a good instrument to help other people recognize yeah. that you can go through hard things. You can go through hard things and, and no matter who you are or where you come from, you really can live a life of fulfillment. Most definitely. How do you, when you were telling one, that story, it's just, it's heartbreaking. Um, it's hard to listen to too. And, and in many ways, but how has your association with this memory affected your relationship and with spirituality or religion? Yeah, I'm really, I'm really glad you asked because, um, let me, t let me l little fast forward a little bit in the story. Um, because truly my s true spirituality to me is, is a relationship with heavenly father and, and knowing who he really is. Um, so let me tell you how it is that I got out first of all, spiritually and emotionally, and then later on made my escape to get out. So later on that summer, after we had seen my dad and we, we made it back, um, we, you know, got back to Idaho because my mom really, her, her purpose was just to let him know that we were alive and we were healthy and we were okay. Um, but she had no intentions to go back home to Portland. So we, we made it back to Idaho and we're living a normal life and I'm begging her like every day, just begging her, please, mom, let me go back to school. I promise I won't make friends. I won't talk to anybody about what we believe. Like I will do everything, anything you ask me to do. I promise, you know, if you let me go back to school, I will not tell a soul about any of us, any, anything we believe. And so Finally, she got so sick and tired of me begging. She's like, you know what? Get out. Just go to school. And when I went back to school, I definitely didn't keep my promise of not making friends. That would be a really hard thing for me because I truly love people and I value relationships that I have. Anyhow, this, this girl that I had become friends with uh, from a young age, we reconnected. And by this time, I'm a junior in high school. And nobody really had seen me for the last couple of years. So it was really difficult making these connections. But I reconnected with a friend. And in home ec class, we are like making fruit pizza one day. And all of a sudden, she starts talking about God. And I was like freaking out. I was like, no, don't talk about God. I'm not supposed to talk about God. Right. <laughs> but she actually had such an amazing perspective on who he really was and who he is that I, it just piqued my interest. And I was like, why do you call him heavenly father? And she's like, why wouldn't I call him heavenly father? He's our father in heaven and he loves us and he knows us by name. And he's like in all the details of our life. And I was like, girl, you must be talking about somebody way different because the God that I know will smite you. You just talking to him about him like that. You know, he's very just and he's scary and he will take every opportunity to punish you for the littlest infractions. And she was like, no, that's no, that's not who that no. And, and so her and I are getting into this like conversation slash debate. And as I, I, as I become closer friends with her, I'm just like in awe and mesmerized by the way that she lives her life with so much joy and hope and optimism. And she's so loving to everybody around her that I was like, I 
I need to know who it is that her God is. Who is he? And that's when my spirit, my journey of spirituality really came into existence is because before I was too, too afraid of him to even care to know who he really was, to really question what it is that the cult was teaching me. And and so I, you know, dove into the scriptures and really got to know who he is. And I I know wholeheartedly who he is. And he is he exists to help us reach, reach heaven and to be with him and to to feel eternal joy, but also have joy here on earth. Go through hard things, but to progress, to help others around you and to live your best life. That's who I know who he is. And so as I came to know him, I realized this cult, there's absolutely no way any of this is true. Right. And so when they, at high, in high school, you know, they give you a FAFSA form, take it home, to yeah. bring it to your parents to fill out so you can see if you can get, you know, college subsidies and stuff and grants. And I brought that home to my mom. And she's like, why would you bring this home to me? And I was like, because I want to go to college. And she goes, have we not taught you? Have you not been listening? You are going to die soon. It's insane that you're even alive today. Incredible. Like you're going to die any day. Don't even worry about graduating from high school, getting good grades. It doesn't matter. You're not going to go to college. And I said, you know what? Either you fill this out or I will have to lie and fill it out myself. And I have no idea how to fill this out. I don't know how much money you make. But I know that I might die tomorrow, but I need to plan. I need to plan for the best life I can. And day after day, I'd bug her. And finally, she filled out the form. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I never thought that I would be here today. I never thought that I'd be so close to graduating high school and going on to college and I could really rewrite my story. And so from there, the next thing that happened in my life was um, I did, I graduated from high school. And even though they never, they told me not even to care about my grades, I still graduated a three, uh, with a 3.6 which I'm really grateful for because I, I feel like once I got back to high school, it was like, okay, like I'm still going to try, you know, yeah. they're, they're telling me that I'm probably going to die, but at least I can try. And, um, so I went on to, to graduate and within a month of graduation, my, and I moved out of the house, I moved to a place called Jackson Hole, Wyoming and I got a job and I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible, right? Like I have true freedom. This is incredible. And then my brother dies. Um, he died at the age of 21 he, in a motorcycle accident. And as I was grieving his death, I thought about the legacy that he was leaving of kindness and love and how he was always so willing to help other people. And I thought, you know what? I can't live as a recluse the way that they've always taught me to. I need to reach out. I need to be my best self. Like what kind of legacy am I going to leave? Life is too short and I'm not going to live it like this anymore. And so when I came back home from his funeral and everything, 
I had, was having a conversation with my mom's friend. Uh, she had invited her over to, to dinner. This friend was highly uh, intelligent, knew a lot about different religions and things like that. And she claimed that, you know, because she was part of the cult too, that, that this cult was 100% true. And she knew that I was struggling in their faith. So she was brought over to kind of try to convert me. And when I told her, I said, you know what? I don't, I don't believe in this anymore. My mom heard it, freaked out, threw a frying pan across the room and said, oh. you're no longer my daughter. Get out. Uh. And although it was so extremely painful at the time, I'm really grateful that it was like a hard cut because that was when I was able to make a real change in my life and make decisions on my own. Wow. So I moved out Yeah, for good. How was it? Hmm. Now, did you all, did you check back in on what was going on or what became of the cult? Um, they're still around. Really? Yeah, that's what? one of the reasons why. I know. That's one of the reasons why I've never come out with my story before. That's one of the reasons is because, mm -hmm. you know, I still have family in it. And it's very wow. difficult to talk about. And I don't want to hurt them in any way. Yeah. You know, and this has, but truly, as I've, as I've gone through this process of grieving my childhood and my family, I recognize that this is way beyond me and my mom and our little bubble. This story is so much more about people who feel like maybe they're not in control of their circumstance, but giving them hope to believe and know that they're going to have the opportunity to make their own choices. And when they do, that they believe that they can live their best life and they make the steps to do it. Because I live such an incredible life now that it would be such a travesty not to share it with the world. Yeah. My message of hope that no matter who you are or where you come from, you can live a life of fulfillment. And I am such a firm believer of that. I'm such a firm believer that fulfillment is your birthright, no matter who you are. You just have to stand up and claim it. This is unbelievable. I mean, overcoming all of this and having that attitude, that's a miracle in itself. I mean, absolutely incredible. Now, do you, you know, in our culture now, we see, there is a lot of documentaries and things of related to cults. Do you ever watch any of those? And do, if you do, or maybe you don't, do you, do you feel like a connection to it? Understand why people may be pulled into these types of things? You know what? I actually don't. I'm not, um, no, I don't. And I think probably for a couple of reasons I don't, I don't watch them because first of all, I don't really enjoy sitting 
and being in one place and watching something. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> kind of like body. That's probably number <laughs> oh, that's a different thing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but number two, I um I don't yeah, I just I haven't really thought that through actually, like thinking about studying that cult life or the cult mentality. I think I lived in it for 10 years and I think mm -hmm. for me I understand it well enough to where I can move forward in my life. So it's never been a, a really big yeah. pull for me. It's interesting because your answer is very different from the answer that I got from another guest whose um, mother was in a cult for a long time. Um, and it's, it's part of this documentary, Wild Wild Country on Netflix that's very popular. And mm. so her mother left the family twice to be with this guru, uh, both in India and in Oregon. Uh, it blew up. It became this huge, huge popular thing. And so she has spent a lot of time watching cult-based documentaries and understanding the psychology of it. So uh, it's very interesting kind of juxtaposing these two ideas about yeah. it. Yeah, you know, and I, I think also because I have such a fascination with with how it is that people overcome hard things. Yes. Overcoming adversity, that that is such a big interest to me that I spend my time researching people that have done that versus yeah. researching why it is that people get stuck into a cult. Although I respect anybody who researches that, I think it's something that can be very important. But for me, it's like, hey, how can I be of service to the world? How can I use this yeah. message to help other people get out of difficult circumstances? Because truly the world has never been in a more difficult circumstance than we see it today. Mm. All the diversion and the fear. I mean, I had to really think about what is it that I'm an expert at? How is it that I can truly help people? And my expertise is overcoming fear Yeah, to live a life of fulfillment. And I study that so much that I don't have time. I don't have the time or the energy to, to figure out why is it that people get into cults. But um, I understand why my mom did. And I think the questions you asked definitely were even eye-opening to me on a little bit about why it is that she got sucked into it. Yeah. Well, you know, I want to spend our last little time here discussing what you're currently doing and the positive uh, direction uh, that you're doing to help others over overcome, you know, this fear or overcoming very difficult circumstances. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually own a, a commercial security company. I started it back in 2012 and I started with my husband. And the reason why we started it was because at the time I was working for corporate America and I had just had my first baby and I thought that I was going to be able to, you know, put my husband through school for the next three years. But it was so difficult for me because I really wanted to be more of a mother in my baby's life. So I said, Sean, let's, let's go out and go live your dream. Go start your dream of starting a commercial security company. Let's do that because I am so sorry. Like I, I really want to be home more with the baby and I'm spending so much time at work and my, my schedule flexibility is like, I have no flexibility in my schedule. So let's do that. Let's start that dream. And so 
I was in sales and marketing and my husband was all the fulfillment, meaning like all of the installations and service. And after three years, you know, which we always thought we'd break even after the first year. <laughs> at, at the three-year mark, my accountant right. was like, uh, Christine, you guys are sucking really bad. I mean, you guys have been making less than minimum wage for the last three years. It's like, and you're burnt out to the bone. I can tell you're like on the verge of cracking because you have two choices. You shut the doors to this business, get a regular paying job, or number two, figure out how to make it profitable. And I was like, oh my gosh, what do you think I've been doing? I've been trying to make this profitable. Are you crazy? And I realized he was absolutely correct. I mean, I looked across the table at my husband and I thought, there is absolutely no way that our marriage is going to survive a business failure because we are fighting like cats and dogs. We're so stressed out money and time, how to manage the business. Um, I was like, we can't survive a business failure. And I realized that in order for me to make major change in my life, I had to create a purpose or have a purpose so strong that it got me to change my behaviors, that I would go out and, and make the sales calls that I needed to make, overcome the fear of, of me being a female in a male-driven industry and being really a, a very young business owner um, and do the due diligence to make the sales calls and close the sales and do a great job for my clients. And so money wasn't motivating me. I was trying to make money for the, the last three years. It wasn't working, right? So I was like, I need to save my marriage, not just for me and my husband, but for this family that we've started. I don't want a broken family like what I grew up in. So at the time, I had been vision boarding for the last couple of years. I don't know if you're familiar with vision boards. I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so... I, but for me, vision boarding was like, I'm going to open up this magazine and, and grab some positive infer like, in, you know, pictures. Um, oh yeah, I definitely want my body to look like that. And I want to drive this kind of car and I want to definitely get out of credit card debt and I want to live in this kind of house. Um, but none of it was really purpose driven. And so I restarted a new vision board and my purpose was to save my marriage. And I knew that everything that I did needed to fuel that purpose and every time I made my sales calls, even though it was hard, it was like, this is what I need to do. I have to do this for my marriage, for my family. And over time, things changed. And we finally got out of making less than minimum wage to finally making you know, over six figures a year. And then now we make over six figures a month. And it's because as my purpose has changed, I've identified the purpose. I create my goals that align with that purpose and I create a plan to live that purpose. And so now I teach that exact same strategy and method to people in my workshops. So I do a quarterly workshop where it's live. Um, and I go through a, it's, it's this incredible um, workbook that we go through. And when they leave, they have a purpose-driven vision board that has their purpose at the very top, all like the five to maximum of 10 goals that they're going to work on for the next 12 months and a written down exact plan on how they're going to live that day in and day out. 
So it's for people who are working to ambitious people who are looking mm -hmm. to enjoy better health, deepen their relationships and create financial abundance. Christine, so I have to tell you, I have to tell you, you are a wonderful person. I mean, the fact that you are telling your story and you just let it rip. Not everybody does that. You know, some people hold back things that are difficult in their life, but you have an incredible story. You're an incredible person. And I'm so happy for your success after all of this. I think it's really important to lift up people and be good to other people. And I'm impressed by you. I am. <laughs> Extremely. I'm humbled. I, I truly am humbled. And I and I want everybody to know that I truly am blessed. I mean, I've been blessed with so uh, much when it comes to human capital. <laughs> like I've been given so many talents and I really believe that Heavenly Father gives you these talents, not just for yourself to benefit yourself, but to benefit the lives of other people. And most definitely. And And I just feel like I'm, I'm obligated, you know, I'm obligated and I'm so joyful in this process to be able to use my talents to help other people. And there's nothing more that I want than other people to live an incredible life, a life that they absolutely love, a life where they wake up in the morning and they're so excited because they're going to use their time and their talents to bless the lives of other people. I am with you. It is literally the, the mission of my podcast. To have as many people come on, tell their stories, be a light to other people, help others, and um, I'm I'm just really grateful that you gave me some time, you know, to tell you and tell your story in my podcast. I'm very grateful for it. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be on your podcast, truly, Darian. I'm I'm so grateful for people like you who are so happy and willing and eager to to share messages like mine with the world. Because I know, I know that the world more than ever, they need to hear it. Most definitely. Well, thank you so much for your time, Christine. And we will definitely continue to be in touch. And one thing I always say with all my guests is it's not a one-off and that I really am invested in checking in with people, you know, here and there throughout the time, just to make sure you're good and, and, and be supportive and encouraging of what you're going through in your life. So uh, you will certainly hear from me beyond this. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'd love to be an advocate for you and your podcast as well. Thank you so much. Well, I will be in touch, Christine. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone.